0: Morgan. It's Jory. Uh, So I have a situation I was hoping you could help with. I need to cash in a no-questions-asked kind of favor. If I were to bring you some ashes, would you be able to tell me if they were human? I, I know you can't test DNA, but maybe you could tell me if it's rock dust or something? Anyways, let me know. Thanks.
1: This is a story exploring the search of one missing person, the remnants of corrupted reputation, and the darkness of our hometowns. This is That Creepy Podcast. I
0: might have found something.
2: Better hide it then. Time's up. You have company.
1: Thanks for listening. I had been planning to take John back to the cabin since we'd found him. Of course, I was planning to do it in broad daylight, not as the sun was going down. But you can't plan everything. He'd been quiet most of the drive there. It's not that I didn't trust John, it's just that he was unpredictable. I'd seen no signs of the violent, desperate man his stories made him out to be, but that made me all the more cautious. Actually, he was almost pleasant. Charming in the few moments I'd spent with him a smart passionate self-taught intellectual I could see why Jory had taken a liking to him Still I Saw the mental cracks poised to break And I wanted to hear his story for myself So I took him back to the cabin Here we are let's start inside
3: Are we allowed
1: to be inside? Not officially, but when has that stopped you? We walked up the front steps. A large portion of the structure had been consumed by fire, and the front door was completely gone, and the inside was all charred wallpaper and damp, burnt couch cushions. The sprinkle of rain began turning into a full shower, and the fire-consumed roof gave me no choice but to open my umbrella inside.
3: Are you superstitious? Culturally, yes. Why? Why?
1: I opened my umbrella and shrugged in response. John just smiled and did the Catholic sign of the cross. I guess he was okay. This was my first time at the cabin and John's first time since he'd disappeared. He led the way through the small space, and I followed at a respectful distance, as to not crowd this emotional moment. His eyes scanned the burnt walls, but he said nothing. Until we got to the bedroom until he stopped in front of the blood-splattered wall.
3: This is some sloppy work, even for my dad.
1: Wait, what do you mean? You didn't do this?
3: No way. I didn't have time to cover my tracks like usual. When I disappear, I do it right. This had to be someone else. I'm guessing my dad? Maybe the sheriff? I don't care what Lauren says, I think they're working together. You don't think that's a little paranoid? I've never regretted being paranoid. Paranoia is the only reason I'm still alive. He
1: said it simply, like a fact. With no malice, almost no feelings at all. I asked my next question carefully. Did you know Sheriff Davidson?
3: We ran into each other once or twice.
1: He turned to leave the home and I followed. We walked around the perimeter of the cabin. I have a confession. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I didn't bring you here to give you closure or anything. I had ulterior motives. You know, Jory got arrested last week for setting this cabin on fire. And of course, because it's Jory, she doesn't have an alibi. She may have a trial if we don't find any evidence or witnesses to prove her innocence.
3: She hasn't said anything about that to me?
1: Well, yeah, of course she hasn't. She doesn't want to worry us, and she definitely doesn't want to remind anyone of her... Spicy past. Not to mention she likes staying blissfully ignorant of her own mortality. The worst part is I'm starting to doubt her. She really hasn't been in her right mind lately. None of us have.
3: So where do I come in?
1: Well, you can tell me if you set your own damn house on fire for starters.
3: For Jory's sake, I wish I could say I had.
1: Another dead end. Jory's future was looking more and more unsure. We stepped into a clearing, and John stopped short. The setting sun and rain-cloud-covered sky had made visibility nearly non-existent. But still, John reached up and lightly touched the bark of a tree at the edge of the clearing. The blind movement a side effect of muscle memory.
3: Did you know that the eyes are the first thing to decay in a body? The human body itself is no notoriously difficult to preserve. I mean, not even embalming keeps it around for long, but eyes are actually impossible. They can change color within the first 10 minutes of death and eventually liquefy. If you're cremating a body, they're the first soft tissue to go. So I was taught that eyes were a precious thing. They were the windows to the soul. And once the soul was gone, the eyes left too. So when I did something drastic to survive and started feeling less than human, I would look in the mirror at my eyes and tell myself not to worry. My soul was still in there somewhere.
1: John started back in the direction of the car. I took my phone out and turned on the flashlight, illuminating the clearing. There, where John had been touching, was a carving of an eye in a tree. But there wasn't just the one Jory had been describing. There were many. All around me, circling the clearing, tree after tree. I immediately left, feeling even more uneasy than when I had arrived.
2: Uh, you look like hell. Didn't we agree to talk in Harker tonight?
0: Yeah, but we might as well talk now.
2: Uh, how did you get here?
0: Dora's car. Oh, here's your binder. Thanks for letting me borrow it.
2: <sighs> Am I to assume you borrowed the car the same way you borrowed my files? Yep. When was the last time you slept?
0: I have no idea, it's been a while. So, I wanted to discuss what to do about John.
2: Yeah, let me just do something real quick.
0: Lawrence disappeared down the hall, and I set about opening kitchen cabinets, searching for coffee. A bold move considering I'd only been here once before. But Sleep and I hadn't been friends for several days now, so desperate times called for desperate measures. He returned a few moments later, raising an eyebrow at my lapsing manners. But he just wordlessly reached past me to the cabinet over the coffee maker, the one I'd already looked in, and took over the process of making the liquid drug. So how I see it, we have two options. A, we set a trap for John's dad.
2: No, this isn't a TV show. Next idea.
0: Okay, B, we buy John a ticket to Europe and just accept our fates all of the sheriff.
2: You think John's dad killed Davidson?
0: Yeah, don't you? There was clearly some kind of blackmail or threat going on. That's the only thing to explain that half-assed search.
2: You have a high opinion of your small town, don't you?
0: What's that supposed to mean?
2: It means there are other possible reasons for their lazy work. Like? Like? John was an outsider in a small town. Maybe they didn't care to find him. Or maybe it was limited resources. Or maybe they really are just bad at their jobs.
0: So you're saying you trusted Sheriff Davidson?
2: Oh god, no. I'm sure Davidson was hiding something, but we can't assume he was involved with John's dad.
0: Then what's your suggestion?
2: You won't like it.
0: A muscle in Lawrence's jaw feathered, and he suddenly looked very interested in switching on the coffee maker. I could already tell I definitely wouldn't like this.
2: At the funeral, I talked to Franklin. And? And I think we should tell Franklin everything. And get the force involved.
0: That's a terrible idea.
2: It's the only way to bring John's dad to justice. We need to shut down that whole operation.
0: I felt stabbed in the gut. The idea of anyone else knowing the details of our situation made me uneasy enough. But Franklin... The history between us left me drowning and gasping for air. Lawrence continued on, pretending not to see the look of nausea on my face.
2: Listen, you care about John being safe. We all do. But I also care about making sure his dad never terrorizes anyone ever again. And getting that crematory shut down. I don't want anyone else to have to take the drastic measures John has had to. No one should have to carry that burden.
0: I stalked to the couch and threw myself face down. Come on in. You called Henry?
4: Marjorie Eleanor Bradford. What's this I hear about you not sleeping?
0: Someone has been lying to you. I've slept.
4: Two-hour shifts isn't sleep. Uh, I'm removing myself from this. I'll be
2: in the office.
0: Lawrence shot his signature annoyed look in my direction. But a glint of mischief hid behind it. Not a fun mischief. The kind of mischief that lives in psychologists and anthropologists. Did he call Henry so he didn't have to deal with me? Or because he was genuinely worried? How much did I actually know Lawrence at all? He took his coffee cup and disappeared down the hall in the direction of the office. Henry and I stared at each other. Both parties' arms crossed in defiance. The kind of mirrored stubbornness only found in fights between family. We heard the office door click shut.
4: You have two options. Either you can tell me what's bothering you now, then be force-fed these Benadryl, or you can take these Benadryl and tell me after you sleep.
0: We stared at each other. Blood reflecting blood. Then I broke. I don't know how to help him. Everything's moving so quickly, and I don't think I can help him, Henry.
4: Not without sleep, you can't. You shouldn't even be driving right now, let alone looking for people.
0: In my delirium, I'd nearly forgotten how few people had knowledge of John's current whereabouts and how, against all odds, he was safe. Knowing John, he was probably happily curled up in a window somewhere in Oakland House reading. Henry grabbed my shoulders and started ushering me to Lawrence's bedroom. Honestly, the fact that you and Lawrence know each other is a real bummer.
4: Yes, yes. Woe to your impulses. Now give me your recording thing take these Benadryl, and don't even think about sneaking out that window. Well, that was fun. Henry leaned against the wall and slumped to the floor. It's a good thing you called me. Her sleepwalking gets worse when she's not sleeping enough. Anything I can do to help? Nope, I'll just be sitting here against the door for the next six hours, if that's all right. You're not in my way. i was just gonna head to Harker and check up on things. I don't want to know. No, you don't. There are times I don't even want to know. I can't decide if I'm thankful you're helping my cousin, or (laughs) you know those people in your life that you love, but you know you'll be there at their funeral? Not when you're old, either. You've already mentally prepared yourself for that phone call saying they didn't make it. Yeah, I do. That was joy for us all growing up, even before the sleepwalking got bad. My aunt and uncle are difficult to spend five minutes around, let alone be the only child of. So I'm kind of a surrogate sibling for her. She runs headfirst into trouble, not away from it. And I've watched her do it her whole life. The fire thing started right after I graduated academy, and it kept me in Harker just long enough to help her get out. What are you getting at? I know there's something going on, but she's an adult now, and I can't watch her like I used to. I couldn't even bring myself to call her when Sheriff Davidson died. I did, however, convince Franklin not to make her a suspect. You're saying they thought Jory did it? Don't hold it against Franklin. He's just being thorough. Davidson was one of their own after all, and he and Jory never got along. Add in their record, (laughs) I almost happy cried when I got the call it was a suicide. Messed up, I know. I I can't help Jory this time, so I'm hoping you can.
2: Henry passed Joy's recorder to me.
4: You and me both, Kendall. Like I said, I don't know what's going on, and I don't want to know. But here's a piece of advice. The Harker force loves a deal.
2: Henry leveled a weighted look at me. A few beats passed. I set my coffee and listened to Jory's bare snores at the wall. I raised my coffee mug in acknowledgement before heading to my office, taking Joy's recorder with me. My plan had been to head back to Harker and check up on John. John had been just a ghost of a person for so long, and now that he was real, I caught myself worrying he'd disappear again. Just that morning I'd woken up thinking the last few weeks had been a dream, or a nightmare. That's how I ended up here, standing in front of the board in of my office drinking my third cup of coffee and staring at the newspaper covers I'd tacked up yesterday. It was the story they had run in the Harker Tribune the day after Jory set the farm on fire. Rumor was the journalist covering the story had been fired because surprise, Jory's family owned the newspaper. Apparently they owned a lot of things around Harker. That was one conversation I had no interest in breaching. But the Pyro Girl story wasn't the only recent addition to the board. Articles about the sheriff's death and funeral joined it. Back when I was a hothead rookie with NOPD, my mentor told me to never forget who you were affecting when you made decisions. Good advice. So I stood there, staring at a pivotal moment in Jory's past, and a pivotal moment in Harker's recent history. The sun was almost gone. Henry had left an hour ago. Jory was still sawing logs in my room. My phone rang. you reach Lawrence.
1: Hey, do you know where Jory is?
2: Actually, yeah. She's snoring up a storm in my bedroom. She popped up here and Henry basically had to force her to sleep.
1: She's sleeping? Oh, my God, hallelujah.
2: Yeah. How'd it go at the cabin?
1: Well, I brought John with me. He thinks the blood was from his dad, most likely a desperate move to get the cops out of the Tucker's business. Plus, I saw the eyes Jory keeps talking about, and they're just as creepy as she described. But that's not why I called. John claims he wasn't the one who started the fire.
2: Huh. Well, shit.
1: Yeah, that was my reaction. Looks like our one idea to get Jory out of her trial is dead on arrival.
2: Uh, I wouldn't say that. I have one more idea, but it's risky. And it involves Franklin.
1: (laughs) Jory's gonna hate it then.
2: I'm well aware. I told Dora the plan I'd been going over in my head for two days now.
1: I mean, it's a good idea, but good luck selling it to Jory. I'll let you make some calls. Let me know how it goes.
5: Sheriff's Department. Chief Deputy, I mean, Sheriff Down speaking.
2: Franklin, it's Lawrence.
5: We come free, good to speak with you. I was just fixing to head out for the night.
2: Glad I caught you. Listen, I have some information you're gonna want. Are you free to meet tomorrow around this time?
0: drove me home. Henry had apparently driven Dora's car back to Harker after she called him, pissed and assuming I'd taken it. Of course, she'd been right. That meant I'd awoke into what I thought was an empty home, the only sound being the air conditioning, set to high to cut through the Georgia humidity. I had gotten up and tiptoed around the apartment to gather my things, all the while wondering if a car service would take me all the way back out to Harker. I had just picked up my backpack when I heard the sounds of fingernails tapping on porcelain from behind the office door. I slowly cracked the door open to find Lawrence staring at the corkboard in his office. He'd been still as a statue. I was just beginning to wonder how a human could breathe and remain that still when his head turned toward me. The first movement he'd made in God knew how long. His eyes were glazed over. I pushed the door open completely and stood there, waiting for him to respond to my presence. He just looked through me. I cleared my throat and quietly said his name. Finally he came too, suddenly aware of both my existence and the room around us. He looked as if he were seeing it for the first time. There was an air of embarrassment about him. He cleared his throat, quickly explaining that Henry had taken the car back to Dora, and he had been tasked with making sure it got back to Harker. We rode back in the usual silence. I asked to be dropped off at Oakland House to see if John was there. I knew Lawrence and Dora had been making plans, but I had one of my own.
1: Um, I know we're not talking right now, but I need to pass on some information. Lawrence set up a meeting with Franklin tomorrow afternoon. I think he has a plan to help both you and John. He wants to bargain information on both John's cold case and his appearance for your charges to be dropped. Lawrence would like you there, and honestly, I'd like you there. But you're probably wondering why I'm telling you all this and not Lawrence. I think this whole giving all your personal information away was a difficult decision for him, to say the least. I want you to listen to me. I think this will work. We may not be friends right now, but you trusted my instinct once. Trust me just one more time, please. Then I'll be out of your hair forever. I promise.
3: Bye. Who is it? It's me. Oh. Come on in.
0: I entered John's apartment. Dora had temporarily set him up in the small attic apartment attached to her own home. True to John's pattern, the place was sparse. With only a bed, dresser, and a stack of books piled on the corner. Several I recognized as originally belonging to Dora. John sat on the floor by a chessboard.
3: Dora told me you might not be by tonight. She said you were sleeping or something.
0: Yeah. Kinda.
3: What else were you doing?
0: I had been pacing back and forth on the Oakland house porch, that's what. But I wasn't going to tell John that. I got in voicemail only moments after being dropped off, and our words were still bounding around in my head. You trusted my instinct once, trust me one more time. And weirdly I did. Somehow that, of all things, had survived the betrayal. Which meant the plane tickets I'd purchased for John and I now hung heavy in my jean jacket pocket. So I lied. Oh, not much. Are you playing chess against yourself? Oh, yeah.
3: A little something I picked up from a neighbor in Colorado. I found it keeps my brain sharp, even without an opponent.
0: That's just so...
3: What? Weird?
0: No. It's just so you. I dropped my things by the front door and sat to play chess with John. I hadn't played since high school, but what the hell. 20 minutes passed like that. 20 minutes of friendly competition and John laughing as I struggled to remember the rules. Until... If you had the chance to leave, not run away, but go somewhere truly no one would be able to find you, would you? John stiffened. It was like I had sucked the joy from the room. That...
3: depends. Where would I be going?
0: Somewhere overseas. Let's say, London, to start. To stay? Yes. The conversation had gone from friendly and familiar to careful. Every word carried so much weight and meaning now. This was a new game. Our words, the pieces, my proposition, the board.
3: I'd say no thank you then. I told you I'm done running done uprooting my life. I'd rather be dead than be alone my whole life.
0: Well, what if you didn't go alone? John's eyes snapped from the chessboard to my face, the game forgotten. What if I went with you? We both ran one last time.
3: You know my answer.
0: I know. (laughs) But I had to give you one more option.
3: Did you need to give yourself one more option?
0: Why can't it be both?
3: Dora already told me about Lawrence's plan. And? I think it's worth the risk, not just for me, but for you two.
0: And suddenly I was crying. Not a sob, but a steady stream of tears. John gave me a soft, sad smile.
3: It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies but just as much to stand up to our friends. Do you know who said that?
0: I don't know. (laughs) Knowing you, Faulkner?
3: Not even close,
0: Dumbledore. And I smiled because he was right. And because somehow John had done what he always did, say the right thing at the right time and totally changed the trajectory I had been on. I shoved the printed plane tickets deeper into my pocket and shoved my night across the board. You're lucky I'm a rotten chess player. Or I'd bet on this game. Yeah, I'd
3: clean you up, Bradford. Your move.
2: Looks like we have everything. The front desk of Oakland House was covered in every binder and file I had collected of both John's disappearance and the suicide cold case. Every scrap of paper with the exception of a few of my own reports. The suspicions I had about the links John had gone to disappear would only complicate the case. Franklin was set to arrive in fifteen minutes. Dora and John leaned against one of the large windows, doing shots of a clear liquid that smelled like a forest. John looked almost excited, Dora looked almost drunk. What we were about to do had two possible outcomes. Either Jory and John would walk away with clear records, or they'd both be arrested. Honestly, they deserve to be arrested, but I was still hoping for the former.
1: Do you think Jory's coming?
2: I hope so. She may be the difference between this working and failing. Why? Optics. Right. I I think she'll be here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. sorry I'm late. I had to get something on the
2: way. Glad you made it, Bradford. Dora's tumbler froze midway to her mouth. John beamed with pride until he noticed what she was carrying. None of us had told John about our little adventure to his family's mausoleum yet.
0: Yep, brought John's urn too.
2: Nobody moved. Everyone waited to see what John's reaction would be. His eyes locked on the urn.
0: I gave this to Morgan a few days ago to confirm if they were human. Since she confirmed it, I had her sign this paper saying she'd look into it. It also says there was no body tag found in the remains, which I'm pretty sure is illegal.
2: Jory sat both the urn and the signed paper with the other evidence folders, and took the glass from Dora, shooting the last bit. John didn't say a word. A knock sounded from the front door.
0: Franklin couldn't believe it at first, but who would? This entire situation was a wonder. Just the fact I had shown up was a wonder. Even I knew that. He'd immediately sized up the contents of the room and its company upon walking in. He took in the stacks upon stacks of evidence and the urn sitting on the desk, then my presence, and finally John's. To him, he was seeing a ghost and the color drained from his face. His shoulders stiffened. But to his credit, he gave no other signs of unease. Just walked in, asked Lawrence what the hell was going on, and listened as Lawrence launched into a two-hour explanation of every piece of evidence on the table. Lawrence's blunt honesty regarding nearly every aspect of the situation was baffling. Had I ever been that honest? Probably not. I finally understood what he'd been trying to tell me. The situation was messy, and wouldn't be going away anytime soon. The fallout would follow every last one of us for years to come. We needed people on our side, and honesty was the best path to that. Finally, he finished. Franklin asked a few questions, then took out his phone, and began making calls.
2: The
5: print has been secured. We'll try making contact through the front door first. Walking up the road. The place is unkept. Channel one just said they found an empty coffin by the east property entrance. The GBI are on their way. We found our first body. It's laying under a tree rotting. Vermin have already gotten to it. Send the GBI to the west entrance too. We found two more bodies in the shed. Approaching the house. No one answered. We're entering the home. found a woman hiding under the master bed, but no Mr. Tucker. Relocated Mr. Tucker, he's in the main crematorium. Mr. Tucker has been taken into custody. This place is grotesque. There's an arm hanging out of the incinerator and an oily grease coating the floor. Parts of bodies are stuffed in random places. Looks like he may have been selling body parts in the black market. Some of my men got sick and had to leave, sending backup. We moved a sheet and one of the walls is covered in chalk markings, lots of eyes and obscure symbols. The GBI arrived, heading back to the unit for a bit, I can't breathe in here.
3: Franklin had agreed to the bargain. Jory and I's records were cleared. The Harker Sheriff's Department and Police Force partnered with several other forces to raid the Tucker Crematorium. They took my data into custody. You would think that would give us all a sense of security, but it didn't. I still caught Jory nervously assessing her surroundings and caught myself double checking the locks on my windows before bed. Meanwhile, Harker blew up with activity. The upcoming trial had become front page news and journalists flocked to both Harker and the Tucker Crematorium for interviews and footage. Jory, Lawrence, Dora, and I did our best to avoid the cameras and news vans parked outside Oakland House. As the trial got closer and the town became even more chaotic, some of us couldn't take it anymore. Lawrence resigned from Oakland House and agreed to contract himself out to the APD full-time. Henry packed up Jory's things and moved her into his place in Midtown, and I packed up my own stuff, ready to leave as soon as the trial was over. I had one less thing to do. Dora, however, stayed. Eventually, the day of the trial came, it was widely covered all over the country. Both Lawrence and I took part in the process. It lasted weeks. Seeing the pictures of my old home used as evidence in a federal trial broke something in me that I didn't know was still intact. My dad pled insanity. His defense lawyer wove a story of a man who wanted the best for his family, but had been taken by severe mercury poisoning due to poor ventilation in the crematory. He used my brother's untimely death and my own apparent loose grasp on reality as proof. The blood test showed he may have been right. Apparently we were all broken. A modern day Mad Hatter is how the news covered it. And I guess that made me the Mad Hatter's son. They couldn't prove he murdered David, nor his domestic abuse. He was sentenced to eight years in prison for tampering with bodies, but Every other charge was dropped. Last I saw of my dad, he was being ushered out of the courtroom. They had doped him out of his mind, a cocktail of meds designed to keep him tame. He looked at me, but didn't see me. He just smiled sleepily and walked away, whistling. Water in the car. It? I left and headed to Harker one last time. I see you let yourself in.
0: Yeah, I wanted to be here when you got back from the trial. But I see you're going somewhere.
3: Yeah, I just came back to get my bags, my flights in three hours.
0: Where are you going?
3: Boston, actually. I tracked down David's family, and I'm going to give them David's remains. It's the least I could do.
0: Have you always been a good person, John?
3: <laughs> I've said it before and I'll say it again. Survival makes people do terrible things. The least I can do is make up for some. What's that you're holding?
0: Oh, just this poetry book you checked out once. I was convinced you'd have a page to send me a message or something. I don't know.
3: I might have. Who knows what happened those weeks when I was going in and out. Which one is missing?
0: A poem by Poe.
3: From childhood's hour, I have not been. As others were, I have not seen.
0: Yep. That's the one.
3: Well Bradford, this is goodbye. Don't set any fires while I'm gone. Especially not this place. I'd like it standing when I get back.
0: So you think I set your cabin on fire too?
3: I think something in you knows fire is cleansing, and you and I are a lot alike. We both know the value of a fresh start.
1: Podcast written and directed by Theodora, mixed and edited by Seth Johnson, music by Theodora. Find us online at www.thatcreepypodcast.com. Special thanks to voice actors Katie Collier, Joseph Teagle, Nathaniel Curtis, Trent Mayo, Ian Collier, and all additional voice actors that helped make season one possible. Myself and the entire cast would like to thank you for an amazing first season. Don't worry, this isn't the last you'll see of Jory, Lawrence, Dora, and John. We'll be back for season two in 2020. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.